for that. For the rest of us in here, we're going to be uh, this morning in the book of Ephesians. So if you could turn there, whether that's in an app or in a Bible there in front of you, we're going to be looking at the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, what we're doing here this morning is what's been largely our practice, uh, which is moving through uh, books of the Bible. And so we're starting a new book uh, this morning, uh, Ephesians, and we're going to just take it as it as it comes this morning, looking at the first six verses. So let's do that now, starting Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. In the beloved, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you um, open your word before us this morning? Would you open our eyes, our ears to the wonders of the gospel? Oh, would you help us to see Jesus this day, we pray. Amen. Now, I wanted to start off this morning by showing you a picture, and I'm kind of hopeful that you might not be able to see uh, this picture uh, very clearly. It's from my high school album back whenever I, yeah, senior year of high school. Um, don't look too closely, and we'll skip by it as quickly as possible, but down there at the bottom, you'll, you'll, you'll see back, my, my, the, the other seniors in my class, for some reason, voted me most likely to succeed. And I've often wondered, you know, here we are almost 26 years later, what would uh, my, uh, those in my class, what would they think now? Um, Carrie, the girl right there beside me, she's a pediatrician, a professor uh, for the Medical College of Georgia. Um, what would they think of me? Um, I didn't end up going to Georgia Tech as they thought at that time. I didn't end up with that wonderful engineering degree and all that comes with that. Instead, here I am preaching to you this morning and uh, maybe I guess you could say, you know, I do have, you know, a whole audience of people at least pretending to listen to me this morning. Um, but I do wonder sometimes, and can we please take that down? That's terrible. Um, <laughs> but I, I do wonder at times, and, and, I, and I've, probably, I've shared this before in other places, that, but am I successful? You know, am, am I really successful? And, and even as I begin to ask myself that question and evaluate myself, I begin to, to make clear that I really struggle to understand the words that Paul, that we just heard from Paul just a moment ago. You, you see, we all come with these questions of, of who am I, don't we? And we all want to know the answer, who, who, who am I? And, and so often as we try to answer that question, where do we look? We look to our accomplishments, don't we? we? We look maybe to our failures to tell us who we are. We look at how good we are, how bad we are. We compare ourselves to others or we listen to the voice of others, don't we, as to who they say that we are. As I'm worried about, you know, what would those I graduated with, what would they think about me today? And there's an appropriateness to us asking that question to know who we are. Okay, God from the very beginning is very concerned to tell us who we are, right? In Genesis 1, he tells us that we are created how? In the image of God. So this is important. And I think it's essential, in fact, for us, even here as we're gathered this morning, to, to, to know our identity, to know who we are. Um, but in order to do that, we've got to stop listening to all those external voices and, in fact, even that voice in our head as to who we are. 
And I hope this morning maybe we can listen to Christ and who Jesus says that we are. Uh, and Paul, in fact, as we're going to move through the book of Ephesians, the, the first three chapters are really focused on Paul telling us and communicating to us who are we, who are we in Christ. And it's not going to be until we get to chapter 4 that he's going to begin telling us, okay, now that we know who you are, this is how you go on living as one who is in Christ. And we begin to see Paul already helping us to understand who we are, even as he begins his letter, as he begins with this traditional in their day, uh, first telling him who the author is and, and then giving the salutation, the, who he is writing to, as we see um, in verse 1 before us. And even in verse 1, we begin to see the gospel playing out. Do you see who Paul says that he is? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He says, I'm an apostle. Now, there's importance there to that word. Now, it could just mean somebody who is um, sent out. It could be anybody who's sent out. In a sense, we're all like lowercase apostles, but that's not what Paul is speaking of here. He is speaking of the fact that, that he is one sent out by Jesus himself, that Jesus called him himself. Jesus appointed him, trained him for this particular office that was only there at the very, very beginnings of the church as one in, invested with authority if you will, to speak on Jesus' uh, behalf as an apostle. And how does Paul say that he was able to do this? By the will of God. Do, do you remember how this all happened? Back in Acts 9, we read this, but Saul, that is Paul, that's his Jewish name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogue so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's believers, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, that's what, what, what Paul is doing in, in Acts chapter 9. And then what happens, we read a little bit farther down, Jesus confronts him on that road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's life on that day is dramatically changed. Dramatically changed by the will of God. And, and note what's happening here. Paul, on this day that God calls him, that Jesus calls him, he's not on his way to church, Right? He, he, he's, not, he's not been working really hard at trying to earn God's favor and being a really good person, right? In fact, he's on his way to do what? To drag Christians back bound to Jerusalem in hopes that maybe they'll even suffer death because of what they're doing. On that day, Paul wasn't even contemplating that Jesus could be the way of life. But what happens? Jesus steps into Paul's life at that moment, calling him, to himself, as Paul says, by the will of God. In Galatians, Paul puts it this way. He says, but when he, as he talks about this day, but when he who had set me apart before I was even born, Paul says, before I was even born, God was at work and doing this. Before I was even born, he set me apart, who called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. You see, Paul knows and understands, as, and we'll talk more when we get to chapter 2 about this, but that when he was on the road to Damascus, Paul understands something very deep about himself. He understands that on that day, as he's going to say in chapter 2, that he was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was dead. And it was in that state that God stepped in. Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in his mercy, because of great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when Paul was dead, 
made us, made him, Paul, alive together with Christ. It's by grace that we are saved. It's by grace that Paul was saved. What's the point of this? Paul, from his very first mention of himself, is making clear he is who he is, not because of anything in himself. Paul, from his very first mention here, he's saying, I am who I am because of Jesus. I am who I am because of what Jesus has done. It's Jesus' work alone that saved Paul. It's Jesus' work alone that makes him an apostle of Christ Jesus. Don't miss it. God reached out and chose Paul. Paul didn't choose God on that day, if you will. And it took place, as we read, by the will of God. Now, Paul doesn't think that this is something that just applies to him like he's some exceptional case. As we're going to see, this is actually how it plays out for all believers. Do you see how he addresses the Ephesians? Look at it back at verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus, who are in, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. Now, if you look at your, your Bible, some of you, you might have a footnote in there. And it might say something like, some manuscripts omit in Ephesus. Okay, uh, so some of the early manuscripts don't have the word Ephesus there, and, and so we kind of ask the question, like, was this even written to the church at Ephesus? Who was this written to? Um, and the answer is, yes, it was probably written to the church of Ephesus, but not just the church of Ephesus. Okay, it's likely that this was a circular letter sent to a lot of churches in that area. It's part of the reason why this is actually somewhat of a more general letter, okay, it's um, we don't see like you do in the book of Galatians or, or Corinthians or whatever where you see Paul speaking very directly to a very specific setting and a very specific problem in the church. It's much more general in nature as we'll see. At the same time, you'll have to forgive us a bit. We'll still be referring to Ephesus and the Ephesians and Paul writing to the Ephesians. We'll, we may talk a little bit about Ephesus itself and, uh, because that is one of the target audiences to which he is writing. But what does he say to his audience? He, he calls them what? Do you, did you catch it? He calls them the saints. Literally, he call, calls them the holy ones, the, the set-apart ones. This is extraordinary language, isn't it? Because he calls them all this. He, he labels them all with it. You see, this title, saint, it's not just for somebody who has climbed the Mount Everest, if you will, of faithfulness. This is a title for all who believe. It's a title that applies, in fact, to all who are here this morning who believe and who trust in Christ. Paul's saying, you are saints. You are holy ones. Set apart. It's incredible language. But he doesn't end there. As he's talking, he also says, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Those who are rooted, who are secure in Christ. We could also uh, translate this as, as those who believe in Christ Jesus. You know, when we see that faithful word, I think sometimes we, we might struggle a little bit because we might think, okay, well, how much faith do I need to have to be in Christ? And that's not what Paul's saying. He, he's saying that all who are faithful, that all who have faith, all who have expressed faith, true faith are what? are in Christ, united to him. He's telling the Ephesians and, and those other ones that he's writing to, he's saying, he's telling them who, where. He's telling them where their spiritual location is. They, they may be physically located in Ephesus or wherever, but their spiritual location is where? Their spiritual location is in Christ. So as we celebrated Good Friday and Easter just last week, what he's saying is that, that when Jesus died, 
we died. That when he rose, we rose. Why? Because we are united. We're found in union with him. Because we're found in union with him, we'll even read in verse 4 that we are holy and blameless before him. Now, this union, it's really important in the book of Ephesians. In fact, really most of Paul's writing. Paul over and over, and maybe you can even underline it in your Bibles or whatever, like over and over he's going to speak of us being in Christ, in him, or even as in verse 6, in the beloved. It's Paul's favorite way, I think, of speaking of believers, telling us that we are in him, united to Christ, this incredible union with him. And so even as Paul begins his letter, he's reminding the Ephesians of, of something really, really important. It's probably kind of difficult to be a believer where they're at. If you just think of the church at Ephesus, you know, they're in one of the fourth or fifth largest cities in the world probably at the time. Okay, cosmopolitan cities with all the temptations, the idolatry, and even sorcery and witchcraft as we learn in the book of Acts. And he tells them, okay, as you are the saints in Ephesus, if you will, as you're saints there, as you're living out life there, don't forget Don't miss it. Don't miss something even more important. Don't miss where your identity really is that you are in Christ Jesus. Don't miss your true identity. You and I, as we gather, we need to understand where our real identity lies. Not in our accomplishments. Not in all these things that we can do. Our our identity lies and is found in our union with Jesus Christ. And because of the incredible wonders of the gospel, we're united to him. What's true of him is true of us. And so Paul, he then moves in verse 2 to the part of the letter where you'd normally say greetings, okay? But Paul doesn't use the word greetings, does he? What word does Paul use? He, he, he says grace to you and, and peace. He takes that normal formula of greetings. But for him, it's been transformed because the gospel has so changed him because he is so enamored with it, because such a fundamental change took place in Paul's life as he's united to Christ, that his greeting can't just be greetings. It's grace and peace to you. Do you, do you know grace and peace in your life? Do you know the implications of it? This word grace, this idea of undeserved favor, right? This idea it stand, that stands in opposition to the way you and I probably usually live, which is trying to earn our way trying to figure out some way we can make God happy with us. But of course, as Paul's going to say in Ephesians 2, 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is a gift from God. You see, God pursues his people with unconditional love, unconditional salvation, not based on any sort of human efforts. That's the incredible grace that, that, that Paul is speaking of. The Ephesians and, and us too were, were not saved because they were good enough, okay? Not because they had become, like in our terms, the way we think about it, saintly enough. No, they were already saints, he wants them to understand. It was purely on the basis of Jesus, purely on the basis of what Jesus has, had already done. And understand, I hope we understand the incredible nature of grace this morning. It isn't just that it comes to us unmerited. It does. But it, it comes to those who actually deserve demerit, you understand. It's not just something that we don't deserve, you know, like given to us that we don't deserve, but we actually deserve the opposite of it. Soren Kierkegaard puts it this way, a Danish philosopher. He says this, God 
creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. Isn't that incredible? Do you know the wonders this morning of uh, of grace? Do you know the wonders this morning of peace? Paul comes with peace, right? And he's not just talking about like a peaceful afternoon that many of us long for this afternoon, right? Where we can lay down, we can take a nap or whatever and have a peaceful afternoon. No, we, we, we think of it in the context of war. You know, think of what's going on in the Ukraine right now. What's the opposite of peace but war? And Paul comes to the Ephesians, he comes with peace. <laughs> By mentioning peace, he reminds the Colossians that what? They were once at war with God, even as we already referred to before, Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were at war with him. We were dead in our sins. And what, is, what do we go on to read as we already read and we're going to read again later? What does Christ do but God? Being rich in his mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Even when what? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. What does he do? He makes us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. Do you understand the wonder of grace and peace in your life? I think sometimes we struggle to believe it. We, we struggle to believe because we, we struggle with grace because we think somehow we got to earn it, right? Somehow we got to do it. Somehow we got to pull up our own, own bootstraps or... Maybe just as importantly, grace has just become normalized to us. Those last couple of words, we're saved by grace. You know them, and then maybe they've just come, become a mantra in your life. It shouldn't be so. Paul wants us to learn to enjoy the grace of Christ, to truly find great joy in it, to find great joy in our Savior. And to do that, we need to constantly be reminded of how incredible his grace is. That it comes to us, even us who, who don't merit it and actually demerit it, actually d deserve the opposite. And we know the problem in our life is we forget grace, what takes place. We become depressed, we become discouraged, frustrated, angered as we forget that incredible good news of the grace of Christ. We struggle with peace because we say, could he really forgive me? Could I really be right with God after what I've done? I mean, because I, I, I know the struggle that I have in forgiving other people. Could, could, it, could it really be true? I mean, all this grace, this peace, it just seems too good to be true. And it is too good. But it's true. So true. And Paul, Paul here in Ephesians, he's so wowed by the truth. He's so wowed by the wonder of the gospel that you know what he does? Verse 3. Through verse 14, in our English Bibles, there's, there's lots, of, uh, lots of sentences, lots of periods in there. For Paul, it's all one big sentence, maybe known as like the longest sentence in the Bible. Okay, a few, two weeks ago, we talked about the shortest sentence. This week, it's like the longest sentence in, in the original language, running over 200 words. Now, for Paul, it likely was a little bit more of a paragraph in his thinking. But here's what we need to get from that. Why does Paul just kind of run on? Why does he just kind of keep, if you will, just writing? And he can't, it's like he can't stop. He can't be stopped to put down a period because I believe he is so wowed by the incredible good news of the gospel and the incredible blessings that come from our union with Jesus Christ. He can't help but break into doxology. 
he can't help but break into praise. Let's just read the first few verses of it. We'll, 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 do, we'll read the rest of it next week. Blessed be the God. And just, just hear if you can hear the wow in his voice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear Paul's wow? What does he say comes because of the incredible grace and peace of the gospel? But every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places come because, why? Comes because Jesus is the source. Those spiritual blessings become in Christ. You see, if you're a believer here this morning, you live in a new reality. A new reality that is found in Christ. And what is true of Jesus is true of you. And that's why Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 2, verse 6, he's going to say that God has, has raised us up with him, with Jesus, in him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's reality. Paul's underlining it for us. He wants us to know that there is more. He wants the the Ephesians to know as they're struggling. Yes, you're saints right now in Ephesus, but don't forget who you really are. Don't forget that you are the faithful, those who are found in Christ. And if you're found in Christ... If you're a believer here this morning, if you've trusted in him, please know that you can never, you can never ever be separated from him. Even as your your like sanctification ebbs and flows, even as your obedience ebbs and flows and your desires ebb and flow, if you are truly in Christ, our status of being united to him never changes in the least. You can never be more united to Christ than you are today. You may be able to experience in the glorification more blessings and all that, but but you are united to him. That is the new reality. And we want to know, and we begin to ask questions, well, well, how can I be united to Christ? How can I know that I'm united to him? And in a way, I think Paul begins to answer that question as we move into verse 4. Now, As we move into verse 4, Paul begins to say something that might make us sometimes like bristle a little bit. It might make us a little uncomfortable. What does he say? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What does he say? He says that before, before the foundation of the world, before we were ever born Before he created anything, he set his love upon you. He chose us. That that God chooses whom he will. He chooses who to place his love on. And if we're honest, probably, as we hear that, we might struggle with it a bit. We might chafe a bit. Why? Because we like the idea that we have control. We like the idea that we can control our identity that we can control who we really are, right? And we like the idea of doing our own will. And we struggle with submitting to his. If we're honest, we struggle, I think. 
But remember what Paul says, all of this is working according to the purposes of his will. And as we think about it, just think, isn't this the way that God has always worked? If we want to read the Bible and if we, we believe that it's really true, isn't this the way that it's always worked? Think about Abraham. How did Abraham become God's person? How did he become Father Abraham? Genesis 12, God calls him, right? Calls him to go to the promised land. But what was, what was Abraham doing? Joshua 24. Thus, says the Lord God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. What, is, what do we learn here? Abraham was what? Chosen by God. Not chosen because he was so great. He was off worshiping other gods. And God chose him. Just as he chose his children, Isaac and Jacob. Just as he chose, as, as he's had a chosen people that we know of from the Old Testament, the Israelites, right? And what does Moses say about them? Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. You were the fewest of people. You guys were nothing. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Israelites were God's chosen ones, but not chosen because they were so great and mighty, but chosen because he chose to set his love upon them. And let's be reminded, that's the very way Paul speaks about himself. We quoted from Galatians, but even as we see at the very beginning of our passage this morning, chosen, what? By the will of God. How did Paul become who he was? By God's will and by his work. If this is the way God worked in the past, should we expect that suddenly he's going to start changing it for our future or for our now? That suddenly he's going to work in a different way? But I think we want him to, don't we? Because ultimately we want to find some sort of justification in ourselves something according to our wills, find something in our self-proclaimed identity that is worthy of him and not just chosen by him. But there's a problem, of course. We've already quoted it, Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Paul here, he's communicating the incredible devastation of the fall. God had told Adam and Eve, you eat of that fruit of the tree, you will surely die. My friends, please don't miss that on that day, they surely did die. It was a spiritual death, and understand that that spiritual death is far greater, far more tragic than any physical death. I think sometimes we, we live net here and now, and we don't understand that, that that spiritual death is so much more tragic. And as we know, those who are dead can do nothing Nothing. And that is the wonder of the gospel. We'll quote it again, Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Not because we were even able to raise a finger, but because he set his love upon us. Now, 
as we hear this, I want to make sure that we don't miss a crucial connection to all of this, all this, this idea that, that God chooses us and therefore predestines us uh, uh, to be his followers. There's something crucial that we must not miss. Ephesians 1 verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What is Paul saying? To understand predestination, to understand this idea of chosenness. We must understand our adoption. Because adoption, we're being told here, is the goal. It's the goal of our predestination. Paul here inextricably links predestination to our adoption to think of one Without the other, rightly to us, I think, should seem heartless and cold. But together, predestination and adoption together are a beautiful, a beautiful thing. God sets his love upon us and adopts us when there is nothing in us deserving of it. Now, I couldn't find the exact quote anywhere, but Calvin is said to have said this. If you do not talk about predestination in the context of God's fatherhood, you will only do mischief. You don't talk about predestination in the context of our adoption. You will only do mischief. Imagine that young couple can't have kids and so desiring to adopt. And the way has begun to be made. Maybe they haven't even really met and will never even be able to meet the birth mother or know much about her or the father. And yet what has that couple already done? Without even the baby being born, Already, what have they begun to do but set their love upon that child? Maybe they don't even know the gender, and yet they've already set their love upon that child without knowing any of the details. That is the wonder of that simple phrase, adoption to himself as sons. Adoption as sons, really just one word speaking of how we are adopted. And and some of you, you might chafe just a little bit at the fact that it says sons there. Maybe some of you even have a version of the Bible that translates it a little differently and says sons and daughters, or says children, and those things are, understand, true, but I think they miss a little something here. You see, in Paul's day, in Paul's day, in his culture, the sons were superior in every way, and often the sons got everything, and and the daughters got nothing. So what Paul is saying here is revolutionary. What he's saying is that all of us, all of us who are in Christ are sons. Male or female, all are sons. All receive the sonship because we receive the sonship. All are heirs. Do you understand how revolutionary that was in Paul's day? There is no distinction, male or female. All get the same inheritance and all get the same inheritance because of our union with Jesus Christ. Do you understand this incredible benefit of adoption in your life this morning? Do you know this morning that you are a son, a daughter, a child of our great God? Do you know the beauty of that? That in a sense you're the princes and the princesses of the kingdom, if you will. Your father is the great king. Do do you understand the incredible benefits that you are an heir And you get everything that Christ gets as your older brother. Do do you understand the incredible blessing that we get to do as Paul did in verse 2? 
and call out to the one who is the creator of the universe and call him Father. Do you know the blessing that that is in your life? J.I. Packer puts it this way. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, but not just forgiven, brought in for supper and given the family name. There is no moment when God's eye is off of me, his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. You see, if you're in Christ, before the foundation of the world, God chose to set his love upon you, adopting you into his family so that you'll be one of his, so that you would have all the rights and the privileges of a son of God. You see, our adoption is the incredible and the wonderful end, the wonderful purpose of God's choosing and predestination. Not some heartless theological minutia, but something that shows forth the incredible, wonderful love of our great God for his people. Now, I'm sure that this raises many questions in many of our heads, maybe, and we don't have time to talk about all those questions. I encourage you to talk to Peter, talk to myself, especially talk to Peter, but, um, or any of the other elders. We, we'd love to answer any questions and, and help you think through this. But at the same time, I want to make sure you understand what we're not saying. And sometimes we take this the wrong way, that somehow we're like puppets. That that's what this means. That, that somehow we, we, we can no longer, you know, we're no longer responsible even. But how could that be? I mean, just as we'll continue to read in Ephesians, we'll get to chapter 4 eventually. And Paul's going to tell us how we go on living. If he's telling us how we go on living, we're certainly not puppets. But here's what we are saying this morning. We're saying that God is sovereign. And when we say sovereign, we really mean it, that he is totally 100% sovereign, that there is no inch of all of creation that he is not sovereign over, that he does not rule over. But at the same time, don't miss this. We are responsible. We are responsible. Our confession, the confession of our church, Westminster Confession, goes to say it this way, that, 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 that God's sovereignty in no way does violence to the will of his creatures. What that means is that we, we do precisely what we want. We aren't puppets, and we're responsible. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he chooses us. Yes, he predestines those who, who will be adopted into his family. But we, you and I, we're still called to respond in faith to him. That faith that we saw in verse 1, that faithfulness that we're called to have in Christ, that, that, that faith through which we are actually united to Christ, you and I, we are called to believe that when Jesus died, as we celebrated last week, that that wasn't just some generic death. We're called to believe that that was our death. We're called to believe that, that, that when he rose from the dead, that wasn't just some generic resurrection. It wasn't just his resurrection as kind of a picture for us, but that it was ours because we're united to him. You see, if you've expressed faith in Christ, then you are one of those who are, are chosen by God, predestined to be adopted by him before the foundations of the world. And here's where we struggle because we want to know, how does that work? 
How's this sovereignty and human responsibility? How, how do they come together? How, how does that fit together? And I'd like to know the answer to that question too. And I think if we stayed at that point, we'd miss Paul's point. Paul isn't here to argue over those particulars. What he is doing, and please don't miss this, he is shouting out. He's shouting to us how incredible God's love is for you and for I. What does he say? Verse 5 and 6, according to the purpose of his will, to be the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear this morning, hear the Father shouting his love for you? That's what we should be hearing. The Father shouting his love. You know, you think of the Father at, the, at a sports game, maybe some of you have been like that, and you're just yelling, and you're so into it, and you're because it's your child out there, right? Nothing matches the Father's love for us. Now, this brings us back to a question I asked earlier. How, how do we become united to Christ? How can we know that, that we're united to him? And here we find ourselves asking those questions. Well, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? And we constantly want to know, what do I got to do? How do I know? And in one sense, Paul is telling us that there's nothing that you can do. He chose you before the foundation of the world. You see, we get it so wrong. It's not about what we must do. It's what about he, what, what he does, what he has done. We, we, think, we keep bringing it back to ourselves. It's, it's not about what I must do. It's about what he has done. The, the wonder of you and I being chosen is that before and without any sort of merit, God chose to pour out his love upon his people, upon his children. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, at the same time, let's not forget Paul's words to the jailer. Do you remember his, his words to the jailer? The jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You believe, not, not bringing all your stuff, not bringing all your accomplishments, not bringing how great you are and how faithful you are. You come with open hands. You have nothing to bring. You trust him to bring everything. You see, it's not our works, it's not our efforts that get us in. It's not our work and effort that keeps us in. If we've truly expressed faith in Christ, okay, if we've, if we've truly trusted in him, we are united to Jesus Christ and there is nothing, nothing that can ever change that. So the question is, the question to you this morning is, do you? Have faith in Christ. Have you trusted him? Do you have faith in him? And if you don't, if you talk to maybe Peter or myself, one of the elders, we'd love to talk to you more. 
I hope maybe you would begin to believe and trust him and have faith. If you do come here and you have faith this morning, do do you know this morning who you are? Do you this morning know who you are? Not who the world says you are. Not who you say you are. But who Christ says you are. One united to him who finds their identity in Christ Jesus. One who has been adopted into his family through the incredible wonders of grace. To you this morning, maybe, I hope, do you this morning understand why Paul was so wowed by the gospel that he couldn't stop writing from verse 3 to all the way to verse 14? Do you understand why Paul was so wild? Why he couldn't help but just leap into doxology, couldn't help but just leap into praise? Are you wild this morning by the incredible grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you this morning for the wonders of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wonders of things that we've talked about this morning that, quite frankly, we we struggle to wrap our minds around. We thank you that it's true. Thank you that you have so set your love upon your people. Thank you that we find ourselves bound up in Christ and that what is true of our wonderful Savior is true of us because of our union with him. We thank you and we praise you. Would you help us as we go into this week to truly believe it? Would you help us to stop believing the lies that our world tells us? Would you help us to start believing the wonderful truth of the gospel? We pray this all in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.